delight to worship the Father in the name of the Son by the power of the Spirit with you this morning. This is when we give our attention to the words of God as preached by a pastor in the life of our church. We cannot live on breakfast and barbecue and pizza alone. We desperately need the words of God. Go find the people of God in a city. You will find a community that gives themselves gathered and scattered to the word of his grace, to his gospel. And so it's my honor to be able to open the word with you this morning. Before I do, we've got two things to pray about as a church. So one is we had six of our crew graduate from college yesterday. If you're old, those days are like a fuzzy memory. If you're young, it was a huge, giant, awesome deal. Uh, So if I got this right, it's Jane and Franklin and Skylar and Bobby and Mallory and Charlie. So let's pray for them. Father, I pray for those six sons and daughters of yours. I don't know if this is going to be the best year of their life or the worst year of their life if you have uh, terrible suffering and darkness coming, if you have lightness and joy, but I trust you in circumstances. I pray that whatever it is, that each of their souls would be driven deep to a center that holds the good news of God's love for them and the spirit given to them and everlasting life in faith in the person and the work of Christ. I do pray that you would lead them to places where they can serve your people and do well with their gifts and be in healthy and holy relationships and just have a lot of joy this year. And I thank you for the gift that you gave us in in them so far, and I pray that those relationships would continue and your grace would be known there. So you ordain prayer. I pray that you would hear it and answer. Hear us in this, I pray. Amen. So be that. Also want to pray for a trip that we've got coming up to Africa and Tanzania. I will be going accompanied by Sam to visit Kevin and Bridget, Savannah, Caleb, Malachi, and Abby. The primary goal of that is to bring your love and affections to them face to face and say we love you so much that we have gotten on a plane and flown through time zones and Amsterdam and and over mountains and crazy to be with you and love you and encourage you and care for you. We're also going to have the opportunity to teach and preach the gospel to church planters who are stationed throughout the continent of Africa. Again, this could be something cool that we do and loving that anybody would applaud, or the Spirit of God can move in power. I don't know what Kevin and Bridget need. I know that their first year was incredibly difficult. I know that this year has been lighter, but I'm just praying that Sam and I's presence would be gracious and encouraging. And I also don't know what these church planters and their wives need, but I want to pray that the word would be timely and fruitful and powerful. So would you pray for that with me? Father, we turn to you again in prayer. Uh, I pray that in every detail of this trip, your grace, your spirit would be upon it thickly, in power, in explosive power. I pray that you would encourage and console the Luces and their church planners. 
I pray that the grace of Jesus Christ would race across Africa, and I pray that you would ready the hearts of many to find life in his name. I pray that you would keep Sam and I from danger and from sin, and that our brotherhood would be built up, and that the name of Jesus would be relished and reveled in and proclaimed in this time. And I pray that you'd give us the grace to do this as a church over and over and over again. So hear my prayer and answer, I pray. Amen. Amen. All right, we're preaching on the doctrine, the idea of the church and her beauty. The whole point of this series has been to stir your affections for Jesus' church in such a way that you would say, I am in, like off of a diving board into the ocean, uh, not ocean, pond, pool, I'm in. I'm all in. I want to give myself fully to the care of and the mission of Jesus' church, and that is done by giving myself to particular sinners, particular saints, a particular body that I become a member of, and we together function to the glory of God. There's about 25 of you who need to become members of the body of Christ in the life of this church. And so the last five weeks has been love to you to say, here's what that looks like. Today is a little bit of an addendum servant tucked onto the end to say, oh yeah, one of the ways that we're doing this together this year is by calling deacons to serve you and the mission of the church. So I want to pause today and preach on this and hopefully stir your affections for the process we're going through and also have you begin thinking Is Jesus qualifying, mobilizing, empowering me to serve my church in this official role? So that's what we're going to do. Let me get there by beginning and talking about two different realities with you. Okay, so one is the maternity ward. Brooke, here we go. Many of you have just visited and come out of this place. Do you know what this is? Maternity ward is a place where babies are born. Therefore, it is a place of new birth and a place of bedlam. Now, I know we're modern people and we've got medicine and epidurals, but a delivery room is still a very chaotic place. You know about this, right? Doctors, I'm not trying to scare you, nurses, (laughs) needles, machines, beep, beep, things rolling, right? It's very bright. Have you been in the C-section room? Like stunningly clean and bright and scary, and weird, and there's hands and weapons, I call them. They were actually uh, tools for delivery of our four children. You're afraid. There is pain. There is trauma. This poor little brand new baby who's lived in this little warm, dark cocoon for nine months just gets delivered out or pulled out into this bright world with noises and sounds. It's very traumatic, strange new surroundings. Mom has to sleep in this bed that goes up and down like this. They put the baby in this bucket on wheels and say, go to sleep. Have you seen that? (laughs) Welcome to the world. You're going to sleep in a bucket. We're going to roll you around. There is no schedule at all. You know this about a maternity ward, right? The categories of day and night have ceased to exist. The baby doesn't function on time like that. People keep coming by to visit whenever they want. At some point, you're like, please give me 10 minutes. Nobody knock on the door. 
Then you got to go, hey, wow, it's so great to see you. Inside you're going, man, could we get five minutes of peace? No, there is no peace in a maternity ward. It's a place of beautiful chaos and, and bedlam and wildness. Now, despite all of that, do we love the maternity ward? We love that place. We have great affections for what goes on there. Without a maternity ward, there's no new birth in the life of a family. And if you want to be a fruitful marriage and a fruitful family, you will be visiting maternity wards. You're going to be there all the time. It's a beautiful thing. But would you want to live there? Some of you love the free jello and the ice chips, so you're like, maybe, no, you wouldn't want to remain permanently for years in the maternity ward. It wouldn't be good for the baby to live there permanently. And so there's this second reality, this second place in our lives. We just call it home, right? You want to get home. Michael Buble sang about this, right? He stole that song from Blake Shelton, who stole that song from somebody else, but you know the song? I, I gotta get home. I need you to feel that this morning. What's at home? At home is order. At home is nurture. At home is a schedule. At home is a crib with a mattress. No more crazy bucket wheeling around. At home is the safety, warmth, rhythms, At first, the rhythms are just eating, pooping, sleeping, eating, pooping, sleeping, but you're figuring them out. Then that blossoms into singing and cuddling and reading. There's a beautiful calmness and order and structure to the home. Okay, which one of these is better? You need them both. Both of these have to be going on in the life of a family. There's not better or worse. You need them both going on. I need you to see that it's the same exact way in the life of a healthy church. There has to be a maternity ward feel to this place. New birth, conversions, repentance, Holy Spirit, bedlam, who knows what he's going to do next, convict you of next, heal you of next, call you to next. Who knows? But also, order. If there's no feel of home and structure and safety here, something's wrong. Okay, here's the way that we talk about this. We say that our church needs to be a holy mix of spirit-led bedlam and spirit-led order. Spirit-led bedlam, spirit-led order. Okay, what falls in the category of spirit-led bedlam? Just read the book of Acts. We're going to get there next year. It's wild and beautiful. Salvation, repentance, church planters being raised up and sent out, lost people being loved and served and engaged with the gospel, people coming to epiphanies about the truth of the word of God, their lives being transformed and changed. Can you control that? Can you plan for that? Can you structure that? Not really. When Jesus was talking with Nicodemus about new birth, what did he tell him? He said, bro, it's like the wind. You don't know where it came from. You don't know where it's going. But you hear it and you see its effects. That's what it's like when the Holy Spirit shows up in conversion, in repentance, in conviction, 
You can't hope to control that. You can't hope to contain that. That just goes down. Bedlam, chaos. Jesus does what he wants by his spirit. Good. But that's not all that scripture talks about when it comes to the work of the spirit. Scripture also talks about order and structure and nurture being a spirit-birthed kind of a thing. In other words, the saints need to be cared for. They need to be taught. They need to be discipled. They need to be loved. We need to press the means of grace, the preaching of the word, the administering of the sacraments in orderly ways. We need to agree to how we're going to live together, what the ethics of our community is going to be, how we're going to worship, how we're going to do life together. Jesus loves to do work that we didn't see coming, and Jesus loves to do work that we did see coming, both together in the life of a church. Now, please notice that I have spirit-led as the adjective up here for both of them. Maybe the fiercest criticism that I've received in the last year, and we get a lot, right? Sometimes I think it's because I have such a critical spirit that the criticism just pours back on me. Well, the fiercest one, the one that I couldn't sleep over was I was told, I'm going to find another church. Your church is not spirit-led enough. So you might as well just like take a bat to my knees and drop me to the ground and have me whack my head off the cement, right? Devastating criticism. Part of that I tried to receive and say, how and why and how can we do better? I think another part is that the person was only thinking in the first category. Spirit-led means long prayer meetings, emotional experiences in song, unexpected moves of the Holy Spirit, burning of things that would deny God in our lives, visible, unexpected spirit stuff. That needs to be happening. But spirit-led also means order and structure and safety and nurture. It's not that's the move of the spirit and then you type A people want to quench things with your order. The Holy Spirit intends to move like the wind and the Holy Spirit intends to move like an engineer in the life of the church. Okay, now the way that he brings order and structure is by raising up leaders, official leaders. We call them officers in the life of the church to say, as the Spirit does his crazy beautiful work, let's create space for that work to fall into good patterns of rhythm and health, and life. So we say Jesus calls and Jesus mobilizes officers, and one of those types of officers is the office of deacon. Let me read our text to you again so that you can hear this, and we're just going to press on this one this morning. Here's what the text said. Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonorable gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience and let them also be tested first and then let them serve as deacons if they prove blameless. Their wives or the women must likewise be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded and faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also 
great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Okay, my hope this morning is to make those words beautiful and alive to you and have you thinking, might Jesus, might the Spirit in bringing order to the life of our church be calling me to serve as a deacon? Okay, whenever we talk about elders, pastors, that office of the church, who is it that we always start with in those conversations? We always start with Jesus. That's a slam dunk, right? We say, Jesus is our chief shepherd, or Jesus is the senior pastor of Seven Mile Road. And then, under Jesus are under-shepherds, or assistant pastors, who join him in shepherding the church. And those offices of the church are men who serve the men and the women and the children of the church like fathers would in a house, and they have a very narrow set of responsibilities, the ministry of the word, the ministry of the sacrament, the ministry of discipline in the life of the church, and the ministry of governance and leadership in the church. Now, let's imagine that those officers were doing a wonderful job at their work in those ministries, and the spirit in chaotic life-changing move was taking the ministry of word and sacrament and discipline and blessing it, what's going to happen in the life of a church? There's going to be new birth. There's going to be a bunch of people around. There's going to be a bunch of kids to disciple. There's going to be a lot of work to do around those narrow ministries. You feel that? What a surprise that would be. What do we need in response to in following up to that fruitful work that is being done. We would need deacons, servants to join them. Servants to step in and say, how can I be serving? How can I be getting at this thing in the life of a church to assist and help to see this done really well? So when we talk about elders, we talk about Jesus. What about when we talk about deacons? When we talk about this assisting role, this serving role, does your mind race right away to Jesus? It should. Jesus is not only our model pastor, Jesus is our model servant. And what a surprise that is, right? Okay, think about it like this. Who are the biggest shots, the big shots, in American Bostonian culture right now? So it's always the president, right? President Obama. Who else is like a huge, wow, superstar big shot? Taylor Swift. I looked it up. They said she's the number one pop star in the world, all right? So she would be big. Do you know who Johnny Manziel is? So like newly drafted quarterback that everybody's talking about big shot. Whatever it is, get this person in your mind. Imagine that this big shot was coming to your house. How would things work? What would you do? So if they were coming to our house, we would clean that place up. We would begin to prepare a meal in the kitchen. In case they had kids, we would make sure the treehouse was cleaned out and there was no raccoons hiding up in there anymore. We'd get the place ready. We'd get our hands dirty. We'd be scrubbing and cleaning. We live on a steep hill. So when you come to visit and I see you coming, I go running down the steps and I say, you found it, you find it. 
Now here's what you do. Drive up to the top, turn around, come down, park on the right side, put your emergency brake on. Then when we walk up the 240 steps together, I stand behind you and I follow you just in case, you know, you tumble and fall. I'm serving you. When we get upstairs, I would take your coat and put it on the bed. I would take your shoes. I would say, here's the best seat in the house. Can I get you something to drink? Everybody feel that? Serving. Now imagine if it was the other way around. Wouldn't it be weird if the president came to my house and said, Matt, sit right here on the couch. This is the best seat. I'm going to sit on the floor up against the wall. Would he ever do that? What if Johnny Football came over? Would he take my shoes and run my coat upstairs and give me a tour of the space and say, how can I make your time here most enjoyable? If Taylor Swift came over, you think she would put on an apron and go into the kitchen and get her hands dirty in the stove and the oven preparing food for us? Maybe she's a godly kid. I don't know. <laughs> Almost anything about Taylor. I don't know, but that would be weird. She would come expecting you to serve her. You need to feel this shock of our God and King, that when Jesus came, he didn't come like a president. He didn't come like a football star. He didn't come like a pop star. Who did Jesus come like? Jesus came like housekeeping. Can I clean the toilet? Can I scrub up the bathroom? Which towels do I need to wash? Jesus came like the guy that works behind the counter at Subway, right? Would you like banana peppers on this? How perfect can I make this for you? Jesus came like a plumbing apprentice. You know what he does? He gets there a half hour early, and he'd better be waiting with the Dunkin' Donuts. Jesus came like a special needs paraprofessional. You know what that is? That's a person who spends their day beside a handicapped child, carrying them, holding them, feeding them, trying to make them comfortable. This is the king of kings. This is God. He takes on flesh and he comes to serve. Matt read that text before of Jesus washing his disciples' feet. They were... Uh, and it, well, there's a text of him washing his disciples' feet. We chose that he would read the text of them saying, can we sit up in the big chair with you when your kingdom comes? And he goes, that's not where you are in my kingdom. When my kingdom comes, you're the slave. You're the servant of everyone else. This was the ethic of Jesus. It's shocking. It should shock you. He came to serve. That, therefore, informs your life in this community. There are no football quarterbacks here. There are no presidents here. There are no rock stars here. Housekeepers, special needs paraprofessionals, subway sandwich makers, plumbing apprentices. That's who we are. We're family, we're missionaries, and we're servants, all of us, each to the other. Okay, there's a beautiful word for that it's Greek, don't get freaked out. It's the word di diakonos, and it means servant. This is the word that Jesus used. He would have said it in Aramaic. It was translated in Greek into, if you want to be great in my kingdom, learn to be the nobody, the server, the diakonos. That's how we live together 
in the kingdom of God and the family of God. And some of us get to live in official and recognized and formal and public positions of service. These are the officers of the church. So we've already talked about one, the pastors. I said what their job was, and if they were killing it, the need comes for a second team of official leaders in the life of the church to come alongside the elders. Their primary role is not in teaching, but in the details of the life of the church. How can I assist the elders in making this place healthy and strong and orderly? And as that office emerged in the early church, they needed to come with a name for this, right? So the the elders were the episkopos, the the elders of the church. What are we going to call these servants that come alongside them? What are we going to call these super official servants? And I don't know how it happened, but somebody feels like they just raised their hand and said, uh, why don't we just call them servants with a capital S? And so diakonos with a capital D took on a formal sense in the life of the early church. And so a second and beautiful definition for this word. So the foundational one we've walked through, server, servant. Then it has another meaning, one whose official duty was to superintend the alms of the church with other kindred services. I love that this starts with the poor. Like if you don't feel that today, you're just going to miss what it is to be a Christian and you're going to miss what it is to be a deacon. What was the first role of these servants? To care for the poor, the ones we want to shuffle off to the side, the one nobody wants to deal with. The deacons cared for the lowliest in the community. Naturally, the gospel races among the poor. We've had all the crutches of materialism and success and health stripped from us, and all we've got is God. And so in the early church, the poor were everywhere, and the elders were preaching the gospel, making disciples, getting imprisoned, getting beat up on. They didn't have time to say, what's the meal going to be today? We've taken in the money, who's accounted for it, and how do we spend it for food for the poor? And so the first thing that Diakonos did was the lowly work of bookkeeping and meal preparing and line setting up for the lowliest of the people. Does everybody feel that? Now, as the church grew, naturally, this was attached to it, this idea of, hey, and all that kind of administrative helping, serving work. As the elders give themselves to word and prayer and sacrament, the deacons give themselves to the other details in the life of the church. We could run down the list, things like finances and money, and accounting has to be done perfectly and wholly. There's a lot of detail work there. You'd be amazed just with the church our size how much work goes into receiving, accounting for, reporting, spending money. Coordinating all the little ministries in the life of the church and volunteers. Who's on vacation? Who's going to be there? Who's watching the kids? Do we have enough people downstairs? Who's leading worship that day? The space keeping it clean, keeping it functional, keeping it presentable for the crowd in Melrose, the children in the life of the church, 50 or 60 of them now, the detail work of 
graham crackers and animal crackers and clean water and, and changing stations down there? How about the music in the life of the church? What are we going to sing? Who's going to be discipled to use their gift in that way? I loved reading about the early church and the office, it seems, of deaconess, where for modesty and propriety, they asked the question, who's going to walk with these women into the water and touch and hold and baptize them? And you know who stepped up to do that? Deaconesses in the life of the church, saying to the pastors, how can I serve? I'll get wet. You need me to care for the women in this way? I'm in. Giving themselves to the lowliest tasks and to other services that went there, feel this beautiful picture. Deacons and deaconesses coming alongside the elders to bring spirit-led order to spirit-led bedlam. Okay, so we've got a church. Deacons and deaconesses are awesome and necessary. How do we find them? How do we surface them? Where do they come from? This is where our text from Timothy comes in. This is a letter written by Jesus' apostle Paul to a very young, fragile pastor named Timothy. He was sent to a church in Ephesus. The church was stuck in the maternity ward phase. The gospel was preached. A bunch of people had come to believe the gospel and be born again. And there was bedlam. Only it was unholy bedlam. There was a lot of not good stuff happening in the early years of the life of this church. A bunch of people believed the gospel, but when the baby was taken home, nobody established order for the care and the nurture of this flock. So you read this letter, and it's the apostles saying over and over again, do this, do this, tell the widows that, tell the rich this, tell the poor that. Here's how you surface elders. Here's how you surface and call deacons. Here's how you surface and call deacons to do their gospel work in the life of the church. Okay, how was Timothy instructed to do that? Was it a random draw? Did he just put all the names of all the people in the church in a, a lottery, like the charter school lottery I went to? Pull out a number, you're the one. Blind chance. No. Did he just say, hey, raise your hands. Any warm bodies in here want to be deacons in this church? Please, somebody, just raise your hand, even halfway, and I'll take it. No. Was it a backroom appointment? Did the pastor of the church just say, I really like you, and I like you, and I like you. I'm going to make you deacons. No. None of those ways. Here's what it was. It was a very careful and a very public and formal assessment. Here's what the, the scripture said in the middle of this passage. Let them be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons. Take some time here. Be careful. Observe. Watch. Ask some hard questions. Take an inventory of their life. And then let them serve as deacons. 
I love the way John Calvin says this. He says that deacons should be selected in the sight of and with the approval of the people. Isn't that awesome? So everybody knows the candidates. Everyone is observing their lives. Everyone's praying for them. And everybody is on board when they get appointed to the capital D, diaconal ministry in the life of the church. Think about the unity that that engenders. Think about the confidence that we would have about those deacons and deaconesses serving us. Be like, yeah, yeah, we took our time. We saw the fruit of the Spirit. He's a deacon. She's a deacon. Okay, this is what we've been doing this year in the life of our church. Last year we told you we're going to pilot a deacon track. Call it serve track. We're hoping to call some deacons. And Josh and Gordon and John and Dave and Jacob are saying we're willing to be vetted to serve the church in this deep and intense way, maybe formally as a deacon. And we're going to do a formal, public, careful assessment before thinking about calling them together. Why are we doing that? Man, that is hours, overnights, meals, conversations, a lot of reading, a lot of studying, a lot of soul care. Let them be tested first. And then let them serve as deacons. So there's a formal and a careful observing of a life before someone is appointed to an office in this way. And in that assessment, what are we looking for? When Paul says, find some potential deacons, and take a really good look at their lives, what is it primarily that he is telling you and the pastors to look for? What would come to mind? Is it skill? Is it how good they are at music or how great they have an accounting background or how they are an early childhood teacher and they have the proper skills to do the work that may be needed of a deacon, audio, visual, space, whatever it may be? Does he go to skill first? No. Is it educational attainment? So we love our MBAs and our MATHs and our PhDs and all that stuff is great. Knowledge is hugely crucial to the service of Jesus' church. But does he run to show me their degrees? Is it resume and accomplishment and what they've gotten done in their lives primarily does he say find the most successful people find the people who have moved the most gravel in their lives and the movers and shakers they're the ones no it's crucial right it's hugely important that the officers of our church are competent and prolific but is that what he mentions is it bank is it pocketbook how easy in the life of churches do we go? Let's call the people who give the most and have the most to the places of the most influence so that more money will follow. Does he even mention anything like that? No. Where does he go? He says, look for character. Look for integrity. Look for virtue. The word that we love for this is the word personal holiness. Here's how he says it. If they prove themselves 
blameless. In other words, find yourself some holy people. People who have had such a formative encounter with Jesus. Such a formative encounter with Jesus that they have come to a sweet and sweeping repentance that when you look at their life over the course of years, there is virtue there. There is character there. Okay, blameless does not mean totally perfect. Blameless does not mean without sin. Absolutely not. It does not mean that at the end of this process, at the end of just one night of the track, there's not like ankle deep, knee deep in sin being confessed and healed and worked through. Blameless means above reproach, above attack, exemplary. It means you can look at somebody without hesitation and say, they're godly, they're holy. They're living their life in the embrace of the fear of God and the love of God. They've believed the gospel. They are believing the gospel. And you can see it in their lives. You can taste it. Holy men and women, that's who we want. Now, I'm not going to run down the list of things. We can work through those qualifications and talk about them being representative and pointing to the kind of life. Just hear with me. Holy And not just holy, but humble in that holiness. Holy and humble about it. We want to call officers who are amazed that Jesus would even be thinking of calling them. Amazed at the work of the Spirit in qualifying them to serve. We want people who are tentative and wary and uncertain about the call, because they know the the depth of their sin. I had another criticism once. Someone was criticizing our elders for a couple of reasons, and in that conversation, he said, like with a shrug of shoulders, yeah, yeah, the, the qualifications in 1 Timothy 3, as if they were like the easiest, lowest, little least thing of holiness that any halfway pathetic Christian qualified for. Oh yeah, 1 Timothy 3. That's not this list. This is a life from A to Z that is repentant and holy in all things. That is deep. That is deep. That is serious. And to even begin to think I can meet those qualifications should drive you to humility. At the end of one of our pastor tracks, we had a a guy on our track look at Kevin and I and say, Oh, yeah, I'd be qualified to pastor right now if you wanted me to. We didn't call that man to pastor you because there's a problem there. Do you feel that? The most beautiful notes that I've taken in our serve track this year, um, and I take a million notes, right, just to love and serve and disciple the folks that we're shaping. There's two, two phrases. These are my favorite. I highlighted them for today. One of our guys said, In my heart, I do not feel blameless. You feel that? That gets me excited. Somebody else said, when I read blameless or when I read above reproach, I hit that like a wall. 
I'm hopeful that you can get there, but I feel discouraged. When I hear that, I go, this is who we're looking for. This is holy. That's who Jesus qualifies and surfaces and we call to serve in official capacities in our church. Holy and humble about it. Okay, and then lastly, I love the very last thing that he says in these instructions. He says, for those who serve well as deacons, gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. I love this verse too. I don't know about you, but whenever I read the Bible, I always got to go really slow because I'm always so surprised at what's in there. I live in this world of, of CNN and ESPN and government school that I work at during the day and all of these messages and my own sinful heart, they all sound the same way. And then when I come to Scripture, I just got to slow down because it's like foreign language, so surprising and beautiful. And here's another place. I'm reading this, and I'm expecting at the end of all this that Paul would talk to the church because this is about the church and her health, right? And he would say, and the church is going to benefit hugely from this work. Do this process well, and good order will happen in the life of the people. Get the deacons serving, and the saints will be cared for well. I'm expecting to read a charge to the church to be excited about this work. And that is all true, right? The direction of all good deaconing is away from yourself and toward the other. That's the direction of deaconing. So I'm expecting to hear about how great this will be for the church. But that's not how Paul ends. Instead, by the Spirit, he looks at the one who would take on the role of lowly serving deacon. And he says, I know you're scared, or at least you should be. I know this is incredibly intense. Capital D, official, recognized, public, your life on display in the lowest of ways. I know that it would be way easier to not take an official role in the life of the church. I know that you read the list of qualifications and you say, where is the exit sign? I want out. I'm not there. But Paul encourages you to do it. Do it. Take the role. Take the office. Do this. God's grace is all over this work if he has called you to it. In your spending yourself in service to Jesus' people, there will be joy, there will be blessing, a good standing. His use of this is amazing. So for 40 minutes, I've been yelling at you about the lowliness of service and how beautiful that is in the kingdom. And Jesus said you put yourself last, right? And what? And that's where you're exalted in the kingdom. This word standing means like podium or step that you advance to and you have firm footing on. Isn't that unbelievable? You give your life to the invisible nothingness of the backroom work of service and diaconing. And what does Paul say? It's like standing up. It's like taking a step up in service to Jesus. And of course, you feel the same thing with great confidence. Serve Jesus as a deacon in his church and you will find your soul swelling with confidence that the gospel's true, 
that Jesus is for you, that the Spirit is in you, and that you have given yourself to a good work. So here's what I need you to do. One, love the office of deacon. Honor the office of deacon in the life of this church. Pray for and work with those who are called to service in this way. It is beautiful. It is spirit-saturated and beautiful. And think about serving the church in this way in the years to come. This is what Jesus may have for you, to serve us as a capital S servant, a capital D deacon, putting yourself in the least of places to see this place orderly and structured and safe and nurturing so that as the work of the gospel blows up lives and brings people to repentance, they have a great, healthy, holy church to be a part of. Okay, when I pray now, I'm going to pray for those that we're shaping to this end. We, you know, we do these tracks, and sometimes we call, and sometimes we don't, and either way, it's totally fine, but that God's grace would be in that, and that there would be dozens of deacons serving in the life of our churches as we grow. Let's pray for that together. Father, this is the third time I'm praying in this sermon. You gotta be answering. And I know that you ordained prayer. And Jesus, my prayers are ridiculous and so weak-faithed. But you are my mediator and you make these prayers perfect before the throne of the Father. So I pray for John and Josh and Gordon and Dave and Jacob, this first crew, who's considering serving this church in this way. And I pray that as we come together to observe and love and disciple and discipline and perhaps call them to this official leadership, that your spirit would be like a hurricane in their souls, cleansing them of sin, convincing them that the mystery of the gospel is true, that they can cling to it, and advancing them to the highest place in this church by them working to the lowest. I pray that your grace would be on us there. I pray for anybody in earshot of me this morning who may be called to help the pastors of the church and serve the people of the church as deacons and deaconesses, that you would birth a fire in their hearts for that work and that they would know that that doesn't start with them doing work, but it starts with them repenting of sin and believing the gospel and becoming holy. Would you build your church throughout this world through the wild, impossible, new life-giving, unexpected, wind-like work of the Spirit? And would you also call millions of elders and deacons and deaconesses to make good homes for the saints of God? This is my prayer. I pray that you would answer. Amen. Amen.